entrepreneurship itself is magical in terms of how it transforms people's view of themselves in the world. So it's worth doing, even if you can't do it well. Welcome to Founders Voyage, the weekly community Discord live discussion. We're delighted each of you could take the time to join us, and today we are honored to have Alice Layton as our guest. We've been coordinating these discussions since April in an effort to connect the community in meaningful conversation on topics that are relevant to all of us personally and professionally. In an effort to make these sessions available to the entire community, we are recording as of right now. If you do not want your voice recorded for any reason, please let us know. We have begun posting these discussions as a podcast for the community to benefit from. You can find the link to that on the past recordings text channel. If you have any technical issues during the talk today, please let Nancy or myself know. Thanks, Spencer. And yes, you can find that link in the past recordings uh, text channel. If you have any questions about that, let us know. But the first two are up for listening. We're delighted to have each of you join us today, and Alice is going to kick us off sharing from her vast experience and knowledge. Um, but if you do think of questions while she's speaking, feel free to type them in the questions and discussion channel, and we'll make sure she has an opportunity to answer them. So thanks so much for joining us, Alice, and go ahead. Okay, so what I'm really interested in is not so much sharing my vast knowledge and experience, which I'm not sure exists, but really in in making whatever I do talk about useful to each of you, because I'm keenly aware when I'm on webinars and various things that 98.2% of it is useless to me. And then there's a nugget that's a worthy takeaway. But of course, my worthy takeaway, I never get a chance to ask about or develop more uh, understanding of in that conversation. So I am totally happy to derail what I had planned to make sure that I talk about something that's actually relevant to you. And on that note, my thought about how we could start is I wonder if each of you could just take mental note or better write it down because that's more meaningful to our brains or put it in chat, um, a social issue that really pisses you off. That when you look at the world and you say, this just shouldn't be. I'd like, I want you to take mental note of that or write it down. And if you feel like sharing it, put it in the chat. Because that's how I became an entrepreneur. So there were things about the world that pissed me off. Would anybody care to share a social issue that pisses them off? An injustice, a wrong, something that's inadequate? One thing that I think is a bit ridiculous is the lack of access to education. Um, generally, I, this is just my own personal analysis. All of human history, over and over again, we've shown that education is the, if not the greatest, at least one of one of the greatest improvers of lifestyle, happiness, health, lifespan, everything um, that we've ever developed. And the fact that there's any scenario where a person can find education inaccessible, I find ridiculous. Great one. Great one. So I'm going to, um, that's a great one. And so that was, it's interesting that you mentioned that Spencer, because that was pretty much the issue where I started. So I think that the way to, um, to do this, I'm going to share my screen, right? So now let me open up this thing that I doodled together yesterday so that we could do this. So forgive me for I should have had this queued up and I didn't. Okay, so in although the, the uh, Spencer picked education, I just took some images from homelessness because that's an issue that really pisses me off. Um, but basically, as entrepreneurs, we're taught 
to look for customer problems and develop viable solutions. And what is it? Feasible, viable, desirable solutions. And But the problems that interest me, the problems that inspire me and that make me persist are not customer problems in the traditional sense, usually. They're social problems. And so the kind of entrepreneur I am is a social entrepreneur. And the thing, so to me, the making of money is necessary to make solutions sustainable. But what interests me are those solutions. And then you have to get interested in money and making money because if you have a solution and you want to be able to persist in it or scale it, you need money. So you have to become adept at the entrepreneurship part. But personally, I am motivated by social problems. So there's, um, I don't know if this little thing at the bottom of the screen is blocking, but anyway, um, I find this a really valuable quote. So th this was written by a woman who runs a foundation. And the accepted view, and I pardon me, I hate it when people read off the screen, but I will do it once because I know some people aren't looking at the screen. Um, the accepted view that American poverty was the result of expected and temporary market failures for a small and declining percentage of the population had been contradicted by decades of experience. The expectation that poverty was thus treatable with philanthropic remedies designed to help people on the margins was equally flawed. The market failure that philanthropy was expected to address in this case was the market economy itself. So as social entrepreneurs, we're basically um, unhappy with philanthropy and we're unhappy with business as usual. And we're trying to attack the same problems that many philanthropies attack, but with market solutions. And that's what I'm going to talk about. So <laughs> I put the Death Star here, Nancy, just for you. <laughs> so the status quo, I, often, I talk about being like the Death Star. It's the wicked problem. It's enormous. It's complicated. How in the hell are little old me, little old you, little old us, going to impact an entrenched system with wealth, with power um, that is ruthless, really, in its command over resources and over people. How do we do that? Well, I think we do it exactly like Luke. To me, we're looking for that little two, that trench, that little two-foot square trench, and that is going to blow up the Death Star. And so I just want to take a minute to introduce you if you're not familiar, um, and I know Na Nancy put it in the little promo. This is, um, this is an infographic I made from an essay called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. It's credited right at the bottom of the slide. And I turned it into an infographic uh, really to help myself understand what Danella Meadows was saying. And she basically says, if you want to change a system, if you want to blow up the Death Star, and you're looking for that two foot square little space that Luke finds, the sweet spot for blowing up the Death Star of the wicked problem, the entrenched power wicked problem. The, the, uh, the levers that you have to do that grow in power down as we move down this list. And interestingly, of course, people usually think the one at the top is the most powerful that if you tax people or you donate money, et cetera, et cetera, that's a powerful lever. But what Meadows says is that the most powerful lever is to change the paradigm. And so that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and I'm using innovation to do it like a good entrepreneur. And we could talk about goals and rules, but I don't want to make this too academic. Anyway, I wanted to share this because I think it's a really valuable way to think about what we're doing when we want to create disruptive change in an industry or in society. And we can talk more about it if people are interested. I have a really great clip about bricolage because that, to me, that's a core method of how we innovate. And she talks about innovation as being uh, change evolved um, system structure. To me, the core skill of that is bricolage. It's transforming through combination. And I could show the clip about bricolage, but I think people probably just say, get on with it, lady, talk about your work. So I, I will skip over bricolage. We can go back to it if people are interested. 
And I'll just talk about my personal experience as an entrepreneur. So this is the Rupanuni. What is the Rupanuni? The Rupanuni is like saying the Serengeti, except it's in South America. It is a vast savanna land where two major river systems cross, the Amazon and the Essequibo. And where these two river systems cross and flood over the millennia, they've given rise to endemic giant species. And so it is a, there's like less than one person per square mile here. It's where Guyana, Venezuela, and um, Brazil meets. You can see that yellow country right there. So it's known as the land of giants. Largest alligator, ant, anteater, armadillo, eagle, otter, rodent, that's a capybara, snake, that's an anaconda, spider, that's a goliath bird-eating spider, and they're all here. And so that's why it's an important place. Not that all places aren't important, but that's what makes this particular place precious from an ecological standpoint and precious in another way, which is that it's one of the few ecological niches of this kind that's underpopulated. So there's a great opportunity to get ahead of the game in conservation. And in many ways, I started from a conservation and still have a conservation core. So it has a rainforest the size of England. And who lives there? Uh, 750,000 people, about 45% of them were brought by British um, to cut sugarcane from India. About 40% were brought as slaves before 1832 um, from Africa. And the remaining approximate 15% are eight indigenous peoples. And I work with the largest of these indigenous groups who are called the Makushi, and they live in houses like this, in an environment like this. Those houses have thatched roofs, they're about two rooms, mud brick, no running water, no electricity, that's what there is. And they live in this very un, you know, low habitation, broad space. And so when I first got there, and I'll end up telling you how I got there, but when I first got there, I was proudly introduced to a school. They had a school. And that's what I saw, that top picture on the left is the school. I walked into the school and the teacher was teaching with her one piece of chalk out of one book on one blackboard. And every student had one pen and a little notebook for the semester. And they were, she would write a sentence out of the one book onto the blackboard, and they would copy that one sentence into their notebook. And I could tell that neither the teachers nor the students understood the sentence. And that was education. And I learned that not a single person had been able to graduate from primary school because they couldn't learn to read that way. So what I started with was well, I thought, well, I'm going to be living here for several years. I can help people learn how to read. And so I ended up going back for a second degree. Uh, I'm a, I have a social work degree. I went back for a second degree in library science, and I learned all about indigenous libraries and how do people learn how to read and second language libraries, because these folks speak a, an indigenous language at home, but the official language of Guyana is English as a former British colony. And when they go to school, they have to learn how to read and write in what to them is essentially a foreign language. And so I studied all sorts of methods that have been successful, and that's what we started to implement. So you can see we have what are called rain gutter bookshelves, where you can see the cover of the book, because uh, children are five times more likely to pick up a book if they can see the cover than the spine, et cetera, et cetera. We got into bookmaking with local stories. That's what you see in the bottom left. And we created three school libraries, one in the nursery, one in the primary, and one in a, what it was sort of an intermediate uh, school. And so that's where I started. And that's, that's the philanthropy model. The philanthropy model is you don't have something, and I do, so I'll be nice and give it to you. And that's where I started. And then we had one little room that was the general library for the whole community. And after three months, it was filled with 60 kids every afternoon. So we decided we needed a bigger library. And so that's what you see on the bottom left is the public library. And those two young ladies, 
were the first librarians. Uh, they read, they actually could read at around a third grade level. So I made reading part of their job. The woman on the left is now a head of school and the woman on the right is now a successful entrepreneur. You've described the library to me um, kind of as this huge community hub at this point. Well, yes, well, it's used for anything they need it to be, which was the whole goal, right? So the downstairs of the library is, is mainly books and computers and the upstairs of the library is a big space, which is what you see in the video, which is, can be used for meetings or, or anything people need it to be. That was the idea because they didn't really have a community center. And so the roof of the library is, um, is tin because that enabled us to mount um, solar panels on it. So now this village had a source of electricity because we had solar panels and we brought computers. And the first year we didn't have any internet. There is no cell service to this community. Well, the first year we did not have internet. All we had was ham radio, but then we were able to get internet by satellite and we brought laptops and we were able to get people connected to the internet. So this was, um, this was my first big effort in the community. And this was at this point still a, a charity. Now at the same time, and the reason I was there was because my husband was manager of the reptile house at the St. Louis zoo. And at the same time he was a grad student and he wound up going to Guyana as a grad student and realizing that there was a population of the top predator on the continent of South America, which is called the black caiman that had never been studied. The black caiman is extinct over 95% of its former range, but it's abundant in two countries, Guyana and Brazil. But in those countries, it's only abundant in very limited areas. And in Guyana, it's the Rupununi River, which is why we were in this village, because they're on the banks of the Rupununi River and most villages are in the savannas. And he realized that nobody knew anything about this animal in Guyana. And it was a great opportunity for him to create a data set that did not exist. So he trained 18 villagers and they go out at night and using lights and lassos and various things, they haul the animals up on shore and they tag them with computer chips and they weigh them and they measure them and they make observations and they release them. So that's called a mark recapture study. And we've collected um, repeat observations on over a thousand subjects. We have the world's largest data set on this animal. Uh, and the bottom left, I won't show you, but it's a clip from Animal Planet. They came and um, filmed us. And we've been on lots of TV stuff, uh, River Monsters and BBC Discovery and all these things now have come to use us as a base. But why do they use us as a base? It's not just because we did this study and we're still doing it. It's because one day tourists from the, in a lodge that was 12 miles away came over at night and followed the crew at night in their own boat to watch them do this, to watch them catch the caiman and haul them up on shore. And then once the jaws are taped, you can come up and help in the study. You can weigh it and measure it and you can shake hands with a caiman right there. This is the top predator on the continent, right? And so the tourists who visited us raved about the experience. And I thought, ha, huh, if we were in the tourism business, we could make some money to actually sustain some of the work that we're doing. We would have money for the library. We would have money for the research. We wouldn't have to be constantly dependent on grants. And so that's what we did. We built Kaiman House. And you can find us on TripAdvisor. So uh, Kaiman House is a guest house built in this community um, with the purpose of generating revenue for conservation research and education. And it, was, and it existed because there were already tourists coming to this area, they just weren't coming to us. And the Kaiman Project was a tourist attraction as we discovered. So this is Kaiman House. So this is the social enterprise model. Now we've got a way to make money and sustain ourselves. And so we instantly became the biggest employer in the area. And also we buy food and fish and supplies and everything from local people. So now they had a local business that they could sell to, which they had never had. 
But the building of the guest house involved basically almost everyone in the community between fetching materials and creating the guest house. And during this process, I got to know all these local craftspeople. And I observed that most of them were over 50 and that there were no young people learning the traditional crafts. So what are the traditional crafts? Hammock weaving, for example, uh, basketry, uh, there's clay, there's something called balata, which is latex from a tree that they form into vessels. Lots and lots of local crafts that were just, no, no young people knew how to do. So I started Wabani. Basically what I'm saying is we started with libraries and Cayman. We developed tourism to support that. And then we discovered craftspeople. And that's how this business came about. So we talk about this as the social innovation model because it's basically combining its bricolage. It's combining the interests and talents of diverse people, in this case, a North American model of um, contemporary home decor with this ancient South American craft heritage. Um, and we are able to innovate new products by combining the skills of North and South. Um, so that is the social innovation model. But what I'm really about, going back to the beginning of our conversation about what pisses you off, what really interests me and how I measure my impact, I mean, dollars are great, but how I, how I measure my impact is social change. So this young man was actually in that library video as like a 14-year-old. And he ended up running that library and becoming a, the village captain or mayor of the village. Um, the impact of the library has been that from zero kids being able to go to high school in 2005, we now have 86% uh, in 2019 who are able to graduate and go on to secondary school. Cayman uh, House is locally owned and operated and the library is sustained by it. Because of having Cayman House and having a place where researchers and others could come and stay, we've been able to continually upgrade the capacities of villagers. So they were the first village in the area to have a digital map of their own community, which was key in negotiating with the government to have recognized boundaries to their community. They have a catalog of plant knowledge, which is normally carried around in the heads of older people. They, we make books from their traditional stories so that the books in the library, which are printed in America or in the UK, um, are supplemented by local literature. And this guy becoming the mayor of his village, he was the first person from an indigenous community to be invited by the president of the country to sit on a national advisory council. So that's, that's how I really measure impact. D dollars get you there. Dollars are the enabling technology. But to me, the whole point is to change what pisses you off. That's what got me to be an entrepreneur was the idea that I could possibly do that. So I'll stop talking and I'd be interested in people's reactions and in their thoughts. I'm gonna stop sharing this. Um, and I'd be interested in what, if any part of what I've said interests people and that we should talk about. You got it. So I, I kind of want to give you almost sort of a combo question, if that's okay. You're, you're a person that's very, well, I'll give you a compliment first. You're very good at zooming in on the little details of things, um, you know, to figure out the, the minutia of what needs to happen. But you're also good at zooming out and seeing the big picture um, and projecting the future. And uh, I, I think that's like an amazing skill set to be able to pop back and forth and something I'd like to get a lot better at. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how you approach all of your stakeholders in that 360 degree way. Is it really possible to simultaneously create value for everyone? I mean, I think the answer to that is yes, but like, um, how does an organization come to master this? Well, there is no mastery. <laughs> uh, it's just, 
it's it's committing to a process of inclusion. You know, I really had saw this articulated best in a case study of the, I think it was the container store. I think it was an, a Harvard Business Review study of the container store that really showed me that other people were doing this and doing this better than me who had, you know, big businesses. The container store regards its suppliers as stakeholders, its customers, its investors, uh, its employees, all as constituencies or interest groups that it needs to satisfy. Uh, and when you're in a community, um, especially in a foreign country, you become highly aware of all of the different constituencies. And I certainly don't make everybody happy. We could go into the whole politics of working in indigenous communities. Um, I don't make everybody happy. I am a, a bit of a flamethrower in that context. Uh, the government there is used to being able to control what happens in communities because they dole out largesse in strategic ways so that the community is well aware that it's highly dependent on the government for its um, well-being. And when you're an entrepreneur in that circumstance and your message is basically, don't wait for somebody to give you something, go out, let's go out and get it. You have the capacity to go out and get it. You're sending a revolutionary message, which I didn't realize in the beginning. Over time, I realized that I was seen as a rabble rouser. So you do your best to understand, and this is really where systems thinking comes in, back to Danella Meadows and that slide that I created, uh, the infographic. You, you map your system. Who's in our system? Whose help do we need? Who are we impacting? They're part of the story. And how can we leverage the assets available to us? So I showed you pictures of a place that has plenty of nothing. It's a wilderness, essentially. But... Um, so what, what assets do people with no running water and no electricity and no education have? Well, in the case of the Rupununi, they had wilderness. It was the nothing was actually something because things like Animal Planet and Steve Backshaw came to us because of the BBC. He's a presenter for, for the Americans and non-Brits non here. Uh, Steve Backshaw is a well-known wildlife presenter with ITV and the BBC. He came to us because we had plenty of nothing and we built a guest house in the middle of nowhere. So the, I remember that we were advertising this session as asset-based. You recognize that you do have assets and who cares? Who are your stakeholders? Who cares about your assets? Who can you impact? Whose help do you need? It's system mapping fundamentally. I hope I answered the question. I mean, you definitely answered my question. It's, it's, it's a complex question. Um, and I, I know Joel's working on a question for you. I might just read out Joel's question. He said, I love the way Alice incorporated tourism and education. How do you identify those intersection markets? Aha, uh -huh. those intersection markets. So um, we started, as I talked about, with education. And we realized we could fund it at least partly through tourism. Uh, we only got into tourism because we were looking for funding for the library and for the Black Cayman project. Then we realized that tourism created all these other things, which was jobs and a local market for farmers and fishermen, um, et cetera. But we only got around to tourism because we realized it could help us with our mission which was education and conservation. But I, this is a good point. This is a good moment for me to introduce something that is probably my core piece of learning in all this, which is that entrepreneurship has a magic of its own. That whether or not you're really successfully making money, giving people the opportunity to be entrepreneurial changes them. It changes their view of their own capacities it changes their view of the possible future. So even if you're, uh, you're not a particularly good entrepreneur, and I'm not sure I am a good entrepreneur, thank God I have a partner who's much better than me at the, at the hard numbers and business stuff. Um, entrepreneurship itself is magical. 
in terms of how it transforms people's view of themselves in the world. So it's worth doing, even if you can't do it well. Sorry, Adriana, you have a question you wanted to ask? Yeah, so um, I know you said you started off with ed education, um, or that is the goal behind this, um, to improve educational opportunities. Um, how, and I, I think I, I don't really know the answer to this, but had, did you see any children with disabilities and how are they affected by this or by the culture there and the lack of resources? Great question. And it's definitely something I've observed. So um, the number one social uh, challenge in this community is alcoholism. And you see it everywhere in the community. You also see people who have absolutely rejected alcohol. You see both. But as I visit people in their homes, I would often see, not often, I would on occasion see children who were clearly disabled. I didn't know, sometimes it really looked to me, and I am certainly not an expert, it really looked to me like fetal alcohol syndrome was a factor, at least in some of those cases. Those children were kind of hidden at home. There was definitely shame around the presence of those children as if they were somehow, they were a poor reflection on the family. And so I never have been able to address it directly because here's, here's how I, I play the game. I'm not a go native kind of person. I mean, sometimes I wish I were, but I'm not able to sit in someone, and I've known people who are able to do this. And in fact, one of them is a, a social anthropologist at University College London, who did his graduate work at Oxford in this village because Cayman House existed. He was able to have a place to live and he came and he lived for a year in the village. And Lewis had this amazing gift for being able to sit in the dirt in someone's yard and just, you know, hold the babies and chat with the old people. And he learned Makushi, which is not an easy language. And he was able to get inside the culture in a way that I can't. I don't have the patience, number one. <laughs> so I respect people who are able to go native in that way, but that's not my approach. My approach is to leverage my outsider status, to be sympathetic, to be um, interested to be committed and persistent in helping them. But I'm very careful not to play family member or villager because I'm not one. I don't have that talent. So frankly, Adriana, I have not been able to address the need that I've observed for these children to be supported in the way that they deserve. Okay, thank you for answering. Sure, sure. I see a question from Daiki. Um, how did you first approach indigenous people? Have you experienced any challenges? Absolutely. Huh. So yes, Raman, exactly. So um, in the beginning, only a very small group of people even cared about education. The education that they're given is a really crappy um, book-based uh, education that is, um, oriented towards helping them pass the CXCs, which are the Caribbean version of what in the States we call the SATs, right? And no villager is, very few villagers are interested in going to university and the whole academic education there is oriented to the academic silo and not into helping them improve their local livelihoods like farming. So it's kind of a useless education, but that said, literacy is key to power. You can't, have power in a society if you don't read, write, and speak the language of power. So the school's not entirely useless. But anyway, many villagers have very little respect for their education when we started, and that has really shifted. That's been one of the shifts, is that there's a lot more involvement and enthusiasm around education now. So that was one. The, the number one glue, pieces of glue that enabled it, me to be able to work there. One is trust. And the other is humor. So I was able to play dummy because 
I am a dummy in that environment. It's about none of the skills that I've developed growing up in New York City <laughs> uh, were relevant in that community. And so I was able to make myself a student and a not very gifted student of villagers in most ways. That was good. Um, the other one was I always tried to be completely trustworthy. If I said I would do something, I did it. And if I couldn't do something, I would say that. And um, I tried to become a trusted person. And I seem to have succeeded in that. Um, let's see. Yes, the power structure, definitely. So I could go into long personal stories of my clashes with the government, including being deported twice um, and uh, collected at gunpoint, which happened um, and all that. And that was quite a few years ago. I have been able to get back there um, and I'm still working, but I don't rely on being able to be there personally. I've created an infrastructure of local people who run everything that, so that if I drop dead or if I never get back there, they absolutely have the ability to continue. Uh, do I, will I be building and expanding infrastructure? Yes. So what my point was about that social impact, um, the social change model, is that that's really the point of the whole thing. The point of the whole thing is social change. It's power for indigenous people to preserve their culture, to own their land, to determine their future and particularly to determine their own development because development is paid for by external actors and if you have your own entrepreneurial engine like tourism and craft you can say you know what government we like this that you're offering us we don't like that that you're offering us and thank you very much but we can obtain this for ourselves so self-directed development is key to their future <clears throat> I have a little dream, which is a technical high school where they actually have an opportunity to build skills that are relevant to their livelihoods. That hasn't happened yet. Maybe it will. <clears throat> Scalability. So the idea of Wabani is an indigenous word that means platform. It literally means a platform you build in the forest so you can stand on it and look down at the forest floor for hunting. So the idea behind Wabani is to build a platform for remote crafters all over the world and to leverage IKEA um, in terms of their reach as a way to scale um, craft globally for people who are shut out of traditional markets because they're so remote. So I could talk more about Wabani, but yes, the idea is to scale. I don't know if I'll live to see it, but there it is. Yes, go ahead, sorry. Thank you so much for that answer, Alice. I was actually, that very clearly sort of interconnects with what I was hoping to ask, um, which again is related to scalability. I was wondering to what aspect do you think this sort of, uh, let's say system or model that you've, you've accomplished there can be applied to other situations, other places that sort of have not exactly the same, but similar situations. Does that question make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I get this all the time because that's what grantors want to hear, Spencer. They want to hear that you've got some secret sauce and if they just buy your secret sauce, they'll be successful. And I wish it was that easy to work with people. The world would be a very different place <laughs> if people were that easy to impact and to change. So I would say there are some key principles of value that are transportable in what we do, transferable. I would say we do not have a model. People are not, people are not replicable. People are unique. And we need to have ways of working that are impactful without trying to reproduce exactly. There's no kit. I'm never going to build a kit and say, this is, the, this is the Guyana kit. And if you take the Guyana kit to Tanzania, it will work. It won't work. It's based on authentic relationships among unique individuals. But there are some principles like stakeholders, systems thinking, leverage points um, that are valuable. But it is ultimately about relations between people. If people didn't trust me, I wouldn't be able to do anything. That's personal. And I'm a very limited person. As I've said, I don't hold babies. 
I'm not willing to sit in someone's yard while they show me how they do X, Y, Z. I'm not that patient. I am not the ideal person in many ways to work with um, less educated people. I have been educated out of my ability to work with most people, but they know I care. They know I'm working hard for them. Um, it's, you know, it's that, it's that tried advice, be yourself, be yourself, bring your whole self, have some humility, learn from local people. Um, they will learn from you and it's the bricolage. So it's back to that clip I never showed, which I highly recommend, um, from the movie Apollo 13, where they're trying to get the astronauts, it's a true story for those of you who aren't familiar with the movie, it's a true story about these astronauts who got stranded in space and the people on the ground in Houston had to figure out how to help them fix the craft to get home. And so the only things they could use, these engineers down in, at NASA, were, were materials that were available inside the spacecraft. So it was literally plastic bags and duct tape and, and astronaut suits. And you know that was all they had inside the capsule. So the engineers in Houston, there's a great scene in the movie where they throw on the table materials that exist in the spacecraft and they build this air filter that the astronauts need to survive and then they teach them over the radio to the spacecraft how to build it but it's working with available assets it's combining your available assets to make something happen and very much when you're working with low resource people that's what you need to do and that's why initially the title of this was asset-based community development which is a thing and it's based on appreciating the assets that exist instead of the lacks in impoverished communities and building on their assets to make change. You kind of summed it up beautifully. And um, I, I have a million other questions for you to be honest, but I, I think I'm gonna kind of end our interview with you, if, if you will. We'll allow people to continue to ask uh, uh, questions and and continue to um, make sure that those get fed to you. I I also know that um, we're sort of going to transition this talk a little bit because um, we've we've invited some people to um, to talk about their patenting experience. So if if you have questions for Alice, please do keep them coming. But um, but while while they're doing that, can I ask if you have any like kind of words of wisdom, or especially for those of us that are sort of like budding social entrepreneurs, um, that that you would give us? Um, well, I'm reading Redmond's question because maybe it'll help us. Locally crafted IMC commerce platforms challenges. <laughs> Uh, yes, there are definitely problems with uh, the craft business, and we could talk about the craft business specifically. The, the words of wisdom, let me see. Um, you have to have a North Star, and your, which is your mission. And you have to stick, you have to understand what your mission is, and then be highly flexible. Stick to the mission and be highly flexible about how you're going to achieve it. Um, we all go in as entrepreneurs thinking we know exactly what our business is <laughs> and we don't, but if we're interested in solving a problem, but flexible about how we solve that problem, uh, it's really the same. Isn't that the same lesson that all entrepreneurs learn, whether they're commercial or otherwise, right? Be committed to solving the problem, but not to your first solution or even your 15th solution, but respond to opportunity, respond to changes, respond to your, stakeholders. So my mission hasn't changed in terms of trying to impact the future for the children growing up in that community. That was fundamentally what the school libraries and the public library was about. It was about changing the future. That is still what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in a future where indigenous people develop themselves. How I go about supporting that, enabling that, and making money to um, help bring that about is flexible. 
response to opportunity, just like I had never thought of being in tourism until we had some tourists show up and say, this is the greatest wildlife experience I've ever had. And the tourists who go to the Rupununi have been everywhere else first because most people have never heard of the Rupununi. So when those kind of people who've been on, you know, safari in Africa come to your doorstep and say, this is the greatest wildlife experience I've ever had, pay attention. You're an opportunity finder, which I think is one of the things entrepreneurs are good at. Did I answer your question? Ryan is typing. And Raman, I would be absolutely happy to tell you my story, but I, I don't want to put the focus too much on me, but, but absolutely my, my, um, my capacity to be pissed off at the injustices of the world and to want to take action and to have the gumption, as we say in New York, the chutzpah, uh, to take action on things that bother me is very much a product of my Manhattan upbringing. And I could talk about that, about the social stratification I was aware of as a child and feeling in the middle of that society that lots of things were wrong and needed to change. So that's the short answer to your question. Brian, that's um, authenticity, right? Yes. So, you know, the thing about these villagers that I love is they'll say things to me like this. You know, Miss Alice, because that's what they call me. You know, Miss Alice, I think we have enough white people in our village. <laughs> and I go, okay, here's a problem. We actually need to increase the number of visitors if we're going to make enough money to do all the things we want to do. And so they presented me with that conundrum. How do we have no more white people, but we still make money? And that's how we got into study abroad. Because when you do study abroad, you have a small group of people, but you have them for longer. So you're selling more nights, actually, in your community, but you're not increasing the population of people you're bringing in. So study abroad was one of my answers, which ended up not working out. We only did that for three years, um, to a pushback from villagers. So they're very good at, at uh, letting you know when they don't like something. You just have to listen. Um, how do you continue to steer things towards the positive and not simply shift their dependency to being dependent on me? Right. Well, that's the whole point of being a good entrepreneur, right? Can we create something that is financially viable into the future? We haven't done that yet. We still need grant money to get some things done. They still rely on me. Like right now during COVID, I just spent $4,000 to send them school supplies so they could do homeschooling because the government basically stopped school and didn't offer them a viable alternative. But I do have villagers who are hooked on educating their children and they wanted to continue. So I gave them, I spent $4,000 of my money. Did they have somebody else who would jump in quickly, no questions asked, to take care of that for them? No, they don't. So that's definitely a weakness, for sure. Um, tourism, as we've learned between the crash of 08 and this current crisis, is not a reliable source of funding. When it works, it works, and when it doesn't, it really doesn't. It crashes. So hopefully craft will be a steadier I mean, uh, people are more spending more money on their homes than ever before because of COVID. So having a variety of income sources is clearly going to be more and more important. And we're hoping craft is going to be a um, very different source of funding than tourism. I know your um, business model is so complex, Alice, but I, I feel, well, I guess to me it seems complex, but but you make it sound uh, so easy to manage everything. Um, if if people are interested in learning more about the, the different aspects of it, what's the best way for them to go about that? Would you want them to reach out to you directly or? Yeah. Yeah, so so you can reach out to me here, but I'm typing my my email address into the chat right now. And anybody who would like to schedule a conversation with me, uh, just write me an email and we'll chat. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you letting me pick your brain too in the conversations that we've had and and uh 
Well, you have great questions. You sent me the best questions I've ever gotten, and some of them were really hard. So thank you for that, Nancy. <laughs> I think um, sometimes I want to think too too deeply about things too quickly, but I, I think you touched on um, the um, the day-to-day runnings of what you do and and then also your philosophy behind that too and and how hard you work to invest in people as assets. So I appreciate that. So I, so I, I know we, we have to end, we all have other things we have to do. So I'm just gonna leave, people ask me like, what do you actually do in Yupikari? Yupikari is the name of the base village. What do you actually do in Yupikari? And I tell them, I do three things. I'm a conduit to resources, whether those are, whether that's money, outside money, like writing grants, or whether that's skilled people that we need that I bring in. So I'm a conduit to those resources. I'm a container of a vision of what's possible. Because when you grow up in a tiny little remote village, you don't necessarily know all the options that are possible for this community that exist. So I have a vision of their well-being and empowerment. And I carry that vision around and I'm a container for that vision. Because when you live in a place where everything is very difficult, um, it's the, the most sensible thing to do is to give up. And I never give up. So I told you I've been deported at gunpoint, blah, 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 locked up. I don't give up. So I'm a container for a vision. That's the second thing I do. And the third thing I do is I'm a catalyst. So I spend my money and I spend my time and I put my energy into these leverage points to make something happen, to create the opportunity for change. Not everything I do works. I could tell you we could spend just as much time on all the things I tried that didn't work, but certain things are working. So I'm a conduit, I'm a container, and I'm a catalyst. That's what I do. They do everything else. I just... Um, I help them persist. Uh, a master facilitator, if I may. <laughs> well, you know, it is what it is. Oh, God, I'm not going to quote the president. Forget that. Um, I, I, am, um, I am what I am with all my limitations, and I know my limitations. And I find the people who have um, talents, abilities, qualities that I lack. I think being a talent scout, that's the conduit function. I think being a talent, a talent scout is key. You're not there to glorify yourself. You're there to help them see that they already have everything they need. They just are not recognizing it. They're not combining it. They're not doing the bricolage that they need to do to create change, but they actually have what they need. Yeah, well said. I, I always get fired up when when I uh, when I speak to you. So today is no exception. The 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 way in which you put things is is really um, helpful, and I I believe in your why. Scarcity is an illusion. We do not have scarcity. What we have are things that are poorly arranged. We have things that are disconnected, that need to be connected, but we do not have scarcity. That is an illusion. And so our job is to connect things that need connecting um, to create change. Anyway, I could go on and on, and I, I, I need to do other things, and so do you. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, Roman, I don't know if I answered the question. So anybody who wants to, please feel free to contact me, and we'll have our own Zoom. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, giving your contact information, Alice. Um, thank you to everyone who joined and participated today. We really appreciate you bringing your perspective week after week to these discussions. Um, thanks so much for today, Alice, seriously. Thank you to everyone for listening. This has been Nancy and Spencer on Founders Voyage Weekly Podcast. Our speaker each week can be reached through our Discord server. Our intro and outro music is from the song Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We'll be back again next week for another episode. Until then, have a great day and continue your voyage.